Uh, Father God, it is good to come together. We just pray that uh, your spirit would be here tonight in our ears, in our hearts, and in our minds, Father. We also pray that for Haim, that you would speak through him, that uh, you would give him uh, the words for us to learn more about your tabernacle, Father, uh, to learn more about you, to learn more about worship, Father. We thank you for who you are to us and who we are through you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, before we get started, please, folks, uh, pray for your thesis. Uh, Irene, uh, Irene's dad uh, passed away suddenly. I mean, he is 92, but he passed away uh, very unexpectedly. Um, long story, and it's it's a difficult uh, difficult situation because they've had to deal with all kinds of stuff, um, including the uh, medical examiner and all this. Uh, she is blessed, Irene is blessed that the majority of her family are believers, uh, but still it, it, was, it was a hard blow. So please pray for them. Okay, um, Mishkan. Let's see how much you folks remember. Mishkan. Anybody? Steve? A dwelling place? Dwelling place, okay. Uh, again, remember that in our puny brain, um, we see what's in front of our noses. And sometimes we do well to do just that. Um, but in God's scheme of things, He is both imminent, meaning that he walks with us and he's transcendent, he's way above us. And so part of the picture that we've talked about from time to time that I feel is hugely important for us is to remember that the tabernacle is not about uh, skins and, and, and acacia wood and, and gold, but the tabernacle is about the presence of God that from the moment Adam fell um, and the relationship with God has been broken, God has been working uh, strategically to bring about redemption and restoration with mankind. And so uh, Mount Sinai, you have all this light and fire show. However, the big thing about Mount Sinai is not necessarily the Torah, but it is the presence of God coming down, um, which is what, what happens then. The presence of God, in a sense, moves from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle. Um, and as, as was the case with the temple, uh, and of course was the case with John 1.14. And does everybody know John 1.14? Anybody? John 1.14, let's turn to it. I, uh, I memorized all kinds of scripture as a kid, and somehow 
it's still in there somewhere. So I want to uh, uh, challenge you folks likewise. Gail, if you find it. Everything falls out just when you don't need it. John is saying to us is that the, the cloud, the presence of God came in a major way in, in the person of Yeshua. By the way, I'm sure you're dying to know a little Greek tonight, but uh, dwelt among us, the Greek word is kenoo, which is basically a takeoff on the Hebrew Mishkan. So you didn't know that. Well, okay. Uh, now that you all know that, I guess I can erase it. Uh, short version is that um, the presence of God came to us in Yeshua, which I think you know. I hope you know. And so we're coming to the part of the tabernacle uh, where the presence of God is especially eminent. Um, I don't know if you all can see that, but I... Uh, this is the um, the ark and the, the atonement lid or the atonement cover. We'll talk about both of those. This is a rabbinic version of it. I think I happen to think that they're probably on the money on this one. Uh, so. Um, Let's first of all talk about the, the Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, you'll find different names for it, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the, the, the Holiness, the Ark of God's Might. So, um, again, remember from a human perspective, it really was not such a big deal. Uh, we're talking about three and a half feet. How much is... I don't have my measuring tape. That's, that's a little big. Huh? That's a little big. That's more than three and a half feet? Oh, yeah, that's six foot. That's six foot. Yeah, because your arm span is your height. Yes, I should know that. <laughs> so half of that would be right. Okay. Actually, the arc was four feet, so about like so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, basically a box, mm -hmm. about four feet. Um... Uh, two feet wide and about a foot and a half um, high. We're talking small. And by the way, in case you, uh, you may or may not know this, uh, a cubit is about 18 inches, which is measured, uh, Ellen, you, you, you want to hear this, measured from the tip of the middle finger uh, until the end of the elbow. So that's why sometimes you have 18 inches, you have 20 inches. In any event, we're talking about something relatively small, uh, made basically made of wood, acacia wood, which is fairly common. Um, and 
It was not a closed box, it was an open box. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, the Ark of the Covenant uh, initially contained what? The the tablets of the Ten Commandments and? Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod, which budded, and? The manna. A jar, a little jar of manna. Okay? And, as time went on, those things basically uh, disappeared. So that uh, Solomon's temple, we don't have Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, We don't have the jar of manna. The only thing that we have um, are the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Also, and this you might find interesting, (laughs) at least I did, that uh, the second temple, the temple that Zerubbabel built and then Herod expanded, uh, did not have an ark, period. No, because the higher, they disappeared. It disappeared. Now, you may happen to think that it's somewhere in, in, a, uh, uh, in a warehouse in the United States. Uh, uh, Area 53. Area, yeah, something like that. Ethiopia. No, in Ethiopia, there you go. No, but, but... Underneath Golgotha. It's under the temple now. All right. Uh, I'm sure we can come up with theories. You started. All right. Okay. I repent. Forgive me. Um, So, basically, uh, the people of Israel really did not get it. Because the pagans, you know, when when the pagans went to, to war, what did they do? They brought their gods and out there to kind of go before them. Um, and that's what the people of Israel did. Uh, especially when they were on the outs with God, they brought the box, the ark, uh, into battle, except, guess what, by that point, uh, they were on the outs with God, and the Lord said, you can take this thing, I'm not in it. And he allowed the Philistines to, to grab it. Um, so, a- again, in terms of um, appearance. It really wasn't a ton. Um, and, and by the way, according to, to the Torah, you not only had the ark overlaid with gold, but you also had a, a rim around it. And what else did you have to have with all the equipment? The poles. Well, before you had poles, you had to have rings, rings through which the poles would go through. And remember... Uzzah? Yes. Don't touch. He touched touched the ark and he died. And I I think in his shoes we might have been tempted to do likewise unless we knew the Torah and the Torah was very explicit. You don't touch. You touch, you die. Which is part of the picture for Israel at that point. Uh, They were Torah ignorant. Um, Which makes you wonder how the stuff, not get just a bunny trail, but I've always wondered that. So if you can't touch it, then how could the commandments still be in it, but the other two items be out of it? Well, we don't know about the other two items. Right. Okay. But we know that they're not in there. They're not in there. Uh, So they had... Obviously, obviously, part of the picture is that 
God doesn't do a catch-22 with us. Right. He doesn't say, you touch it, you die. So how are you going to put things in it? You have to touch it. The, the, the point of this... Uh, take things out of it. Well, yeah, either way. It, the, the point was that the tabernacle was constructed to be mobile. And God said to Israel, the only way you can carry this is through the poles. You cannot touch it. Uh, as a sign of respect for the holiness of God. Not for the box, but for the holiness of God. And, and so, um, obviously, uh, Israel had to do a number of things, uh, or, or the priests had to do a number of things in order to set the, uh, the ark. Um, but the short version is it represented the presence of God. Uh, in the wilderness, and then as Israel came to Canaan, uh, and then beyond. Where I really wanted to park uh, tonight is on what has been called... Parking meter. Uh, it, it, it might be the, uh, some... Uh, that was art. Was that art? Okay. So, um, this had been called... The mercy seat. Uh, it was called the mercy seat by a fellow named Tyndall. I don't know if you all know who Tyndall was. John Tyndall is one of the original translators of the Bible into English. Um, around uh, 15 something, 1520. Uh, where he came up with mercy seat, I have no clue. Because there's, it really doesn't fit. Um, the word for it is kaporet and um, perhaps you might notice that it, it, it has the root kafar and kafar of course means great kind of far away Oh, <laughs> great! Atone, atone, expiate, propitiate. Uh, by the way, it really does not mean to cover. Uh, there's one place in all of Scripture that uses this word to refer to covering, uh, and that is the Ark of the the. Noah's Ark, by the way, uh, the word for, for Ark, um, uh, I'll put it up here. If, if you can't see, just let me know. The word for Ark of the Covenant is Aaron, not Aaron. Uh, the word for Noah's Ark is, um, my brain just gave out, that happens from time to time. Um, Teva, yes. Thank you, John. So, we're talking about something totally different. Apples and giraffes here. Um, so, Kafar, from which we get Yom Kippur. Kippur. Very good. 
the Day of Atonement is not, does not have, and I'm kind of on the bunny trail here, but it has a purpose. Um, the word, this word kafar or atone, really doesn't have the notion of covering. Uh, you might have heard this in different uh, places where people say atonement had to do with covering. Uh, we screw up, God is angry at us, and so the sacrifices uh, provided a covering so God would nuke us. Um, basic problem. Um, scripture talks about atonement not as a covering, but as expiation. Another big word here. Uh, expiation. So Leviticus 4.20, I'm sure you're all familiar with that. Let's turn to it. And we'll come back to, uh, to the ark and, uh, and to the atonement cover. Leviticus 4.20. And whoever has it, Bob? And do with this bowl just as he did with the bowl for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. They will be what? Forgiven. Forgiven. Okay. So, atonement in biblical times didn't mean the notion of uh, a covering until such time when Yeshua came on the scene, and then you would have forgiveness. Um, but you have expiation. In other words, you have uh, God forgiving an individual and removing the guilt of the sin from that person. And you have restoration of the relationship between a person and God. Now, let me hasten to say, by the way, when we talk about the sacrificial system, um, we'll get into that in much more detail. But... Um, it was basically a one-to-one -one, uh, situation where a person sinned, they committed a sin, they brought an offering, they were forgiven for that particular sin. But think about it. If you lived uh, up north, north Israel, near the Lebanese border, and, and you did something you had no business doing, you know, you ripped off your neighbor or I don't know you, you smacked your your thumb with a hammer and then you let words out that were not in the Bible and so you had to come all the way down to Jerusalem to the tabernacle to the temple um, and either bring an animal with you or purchase an animal um, and and have it and, and have it slaughtered and I know this gets gory, um, and have the priest pronounce that before God you are forgiven. And it's not—it's not one of these um, uh, going to confession type things. In the eyes of God, you are forgiven. Period. There's a basic problem. 
because if on the way back home uh, you did the same thing, you got a problem. And like the rest of us, uh, I would venture to say that if I commit one sin per day, I'm doing real good. Uh, so the system was limited, it was inefficient, however, it worked. Because as you read Leviticus and you read other places, uh, when a person brought an offering that was brought repentantly or in repentance, they knew that God had forgiven their sin. Now, th there are some instances uh, when the whole nation sinned, um, such as in, in a case of the sin of Korah or, or the golden uh, calf, and God brought about um, a plague on the whole nation, then there were times when kafar had to do with propitiating, which means um, uh, getting God, uh, pacifying God in a sense of, of, of saying, okay, God, we, we blew it, and... Uh, God's anger is is removed. Okay, because again, remember, uh, God is justified in being angry at us when we sin, because we break His laws. Uh, particularly if we do something repeatedly, and we are rebellious, then God's anger comes forth. Um, by the way, there are eight different about eight different Hebrew words for God's anger. Um, not because that defines who God is. It doesn't. Uh, remember that when God put Moses behind the rock and zipped in front of him and proclaimed his name, did he say, I am an angry dude, you don't mess with me? No, he said, I am compassionate, merciful, full of grace and truth, and so on and so forth. However, God is justified in having anger. Uh, so, kafar can mean expiate to remove sin. It also means to propitiate, uh, having to do with uh, God's anger being, being removed. So, kaparit has something to do with, with this word having... Uh, with this word of uh, atonement, uh, which is why in the more modern translations you don't have mercy seat, but you have uh, the word is uh, atonement cover or atonement lid. Now remember, we, I mentioned the fact that the the ark was an open box. Uh, the top was open. Guess what fit in the uh, on on the on the place where it was open. Mercy the mercy seat, exactly. It was a lid that fit perfectly at the opening of, of the ark. Um, so there are a couple of main things that took place at the mercy seat. Um, first of all, the high priest could never come into the Holy of Holies where the, where the um, atonement cover was without doing one basic thing. 
and that is to take a censer with coals uh, and get some incense and put it on on the live coals so that it created a cloud of incense uh, and go with that into the Holy of Holies because he could not look at the presence of God otherwise he, he would die um, and by the way part of the equipment of the high priest was bells and pomegranates on his robe to make noise uh, in later times uh, the robe of the high priest actually had a rope that they could use to pull him out in case God killed him which is a real possibility um, you know and at least from a perspective of a 21st century believer I think to myself if we understood that what do you think that would do to how we approach God I mean again it's, it's a Jewish thing so you have on one hand on the other hand um, on one hand we're told to come fear. huh on one hand fear on one hand fear uh, and the book of Hebrews is perfect with that because it's, it tells us that our God is a consuming fire uh, Hebrews chapter 12 29 on one hand on the other hand earlier in the book it says let us approach boldly before the throne of grace you have both of those my point here is simply to to say that if more of us who are believers understood what God required of the people of Israel uh, when they came to worship him I'm convinced that how we live life would be different um, so the, there was one thing that high priest had to do the other thing particularly on the Day of Atonement uh, the priest would take the blood uh, either of bull for himself and his family or the goat for the nation and bring it in a container and splash some on on the uh, on the top of uh, where the cherubim are and then also uh, in front of it uh, so those two things took place um, however what is the biggest thing that took place at the uh, at that specific spot All right, Exodus 28. Excuse me, Exodus 25, verse 22. I will meet with you there. I will speak with you from above. The atonement cover from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. About all that, I will command you, Rene Israel. Okay. Uh, folks, some of this is beyond our understanding, okay? Um, and, and we can look at pictures of the atonement cover. And, and describe it, which is, by the way, what the rabbis did in great detail. 
right to to all of the particulars um, and that really wouldn't convey what's going on and by the way just in, in terms of uh, the physical appearance you have the lid uh, on top of the ark and then you have the two cherubim the two angels facing each other with their wings um, up high and somehow the presence of God would hover between between these two angels now again um, someone who wants to tell me that they understand fully what God is about I would challenge them to look at this because on one hand you have just the physical appearance and by the way uh, it was all gold it was it was hammered out of of one basic um, sheet of, of gold the the lid itself and then and then the angels it was all part of it was hammered out now again we talked earlier uh, I guess a couple of two or three weeks ago about the fact that the children of Israel were basically slave labor that they were day laborers they had no clue how to do anything other than uh, build with bricks well how on earth could a person do that unless they're phenomenally skilled to be able to hammer uh, a, a bunch of a hunk of gold not just into in the lid but into the to the appearance of angels um, and as you look and you see the <coughs> description for the different elements of the tabernacle it is so clear that you have two things in play here you have people who had acquired skill remember the the Hebrew word chacham lev uh, acquired skill while they were in Egypt working as slaves you know for Pharaoh or, or someone in in the palace etc again remember that that the that Egypt had a very <coughs> had a very sophisticated uh, civilization um, but again all right we're in uh, Exodus uh, God speaks to Moses between the cherubim now Moses again was one of a kind uh, he can come and, and talk to God basically at will uh, that was not the case for Aaron it was not the case for the high priest um, but part of the worship for Israel was to describe God in terms of him being on throne uh, in this space. Second Samuel six two. Let's turn to that. And we'll come back to Exodus um, much of the time. So keep your um, electronic finger. Greg, would you read that for us, sir? Uh, 
Then David and all the people who were with him arose and set out from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of Adonai Tzvaot, Tzvaot who is enthroned between the cherubim. Cherubim, cherubim. okay. Um, remember, by the way, here's another Hebrew lesson. Uh, um, yeah, I know English doesn't have its kind of sound, like like uh, but. Um, so tsvaot from army, the Lord of the armies. Um, and whenever again, remember that. Different names of God uh, convey different aspects of who God is. Uh, Adonai Tzvaot conveys military and power, almighty. Yes, which is why in, uh, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Use use a name which means um, Almighty Pantocrator, um, and and that's why sometimes you find that also. But in any event, Adonai Tzvaot, and how is he described? Adonai Tzvaot, who is enthroned where? Enthroned between the Kerovim. Now again, folks. Uh, I find this mind-boggling because we're looking at a tiny space here. Um, and somehow the presence of God, and this is something that Solomon understood. He said, you Lord, when the, the temple was dedicated, you Lord, whom the heaven of heavens can fill, yet you choose to dwell with us. And I would say that for us as believers, if we really get who God is, I like to think that we would have some sense of awe that the God who fills the entire universe hangs out with us. Mind-boggling, isn't it? Yes. yes. And so that's what the um, the atonement lid and, and the kruvim uh, we're all about, um, and you often find this expression, the God who is enthroned between the Kuruvim, the cherubim, uh, as part of Israel's worship. Now, I, I know it's been a while since you've heard anybody in, in a worship service talk about the God who is enthroned between the Kuruvim. Um, because for us, we don't connect with that. Uh, for us, other than what we know about Yeshua uh, in, in human form, we think about God as, as a spirit being. We connect with him through prayer, through worship, and so on, but uh, the tabernacle and the temple were so much about uh, physical signs of God's presence. Um <coughs> Uh, 
Okay, any questions about that before we'll take time to go into the... Um, oh, yes, I, I missed a very important point. Exodus 29:43 On the count of 3, let's get rid of our gizmos. Exodus 29:43 There also I will meet with there also I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Okay, a couple things I wanted to park on. Uh, the Hebrew word for meet in that situation is passive, um, which has the notion of I will make myself presentable to you. Available and presentable, yes, available is better. Uh, which is pretty incredible when, when God, who is the King of Kings, is saying, I will make myself available to meet with you. Um, it's usually somewhat of a military term um, where a soldier presents himself to... To, the, to their officer. The other thing I wanted to, to notice, I wanted you to notice, God is saying, I will do what to this place? Sanctify hmm? it. Sanctify it, okay. What does sanctify mean? Set apart. Set apart. Remember the Hebrew word? Kadosh which means God will take this stuff um, that is gorgeous looking, however it is just stuff, not, not big, and He will sanctify it, He will set it apart as a place where He will come and dwell with, with the people. And by the way, that's what we pray each and every Shabbat, that God will take the little box that we are with all our uh, limitations and warts and etc etc and then he will set it apart he will sanctify it uh, he'll make it special it's a mystery but that's what we've come to expect that when we come to worship the Lord that that is in fact what he does all right, let's talk about the clothing. Time? Sorry? You said if you have any questions? Yes, of course. And I just wanted a clarification. Okay. Um, are you saying atonement means expiation, sometimes propitiation, but never covering? Correct. Okay, thank you. Um, now, I, I know you can always squeeze that a little bit and say, well, here it... He talks about, blessed is the man whose sins are covered, uh, Psalm 32. But as, as you read it, uh, Psalm 32, for example, is very clear uh, that David is knowing that God will do more than just cover it. He knows that his sins will be forgiven. 
Um, so all that to say, Scripture really does not give us warrant, uh, does not give us the right to say it was just covered. Uh, what Scripture does say is that um, when Yeshua came, sin has been provided, atonement has been provided in a major way that was not available back here. Romans 3.25. But again, all that to say, uh, it is not right for us to minimize and dismiss what God provided through the sacrificial system, through the tabernacle. It wasn't, it wasn't pretend kind of stuff, which unfortunately you sometimes get the notion from people. All right. Um, Exodus 28.4. Um, actually, 28.2. 2, 3, and 4. And let's see. Uh, Elmana, would you read for us? You had to make a holy garment for your brother Aaron for the splendor and your beauty. For splendor and for beauty. You had to speak to all who are still. When I feel when the, I feel when the spirit they are artistically to make Aaron's garments and for consecrated hand. So they might minister to me as Kohen. these are garments, they are to make a breastplate the ephah, the rod, the tunic, the checker, work, turban, and, the, and such, they had to make the holy garments for the brother Aaron and his sons. So they might minister to me, that's for him. Thank you. Um, now, did you catch the fact that the Lord said to, to Moses that the high priest, the priest, had to have clothing that would give them glory and beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's like you make something different than the other people's around. It oh. was supposed to be only for them. Okay. Again, the notion of being set apart. Yeah. Kadosh. Um, but there was really more to it because uh, one of the words that's used there, glory, kavod, is a word that typically used to refer to God. By the way, kavod comes from a, a word uh, that uh, means heavy, kaved, um, but also something that has substance. Substance. Um... And it's, again, remember that a lot of what God does with Israel is um, in contrast with what takes place with the pagans. And one of the words that's used for idols has the notion of they're empty, there's nothing to them. Um, which is why you have the word like kavod having to do with something that is substance and from which, of course, we get the notion of glory. Although, I would say for most of us, if someone were to ask you, what does glory mean? Uh, I think we would be hard-pressed to come up with a good explanation, because we don't really know where, where this comes from. The other word that's used there, tiferet, 
has uh, the sense of beauty. Um, is it designed to draw attention to the priest? No. 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 I would say yes and no. Yes and no. Right. No. To God. Isn't it to draw attention to the priest, to draw attention to God. Correct. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, the priest had to be set apart and uh, glorious as someone who represents God. Um, which, for me, has, has a number of applications, but one of which is simply that uh, remember that Yeshua said to the disciples, let your light shine so that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, our lives are not designed to be perfect. They'll never be for perfect. But they're designed to convey the reality that God's presence dwells with us. And so because of that, uh, people are attracted initially perhaps to us but the idea is really is not to stay with us but they are there to be attracted to the God who is in us and so the priest had to be uh, clothed properly um, in order for people to see and and understand who they were serving. Um, so, the, uh, we're not going to cover all the uh, items of clothing uh, tonight, but um, I just want to spend the rest of the time talking about the ephod and, and the breastplate or breastpiece. Um, again, there's room for some speculation here, and the rabbis have always been real good at speculating, but um, the, uh, the picture that we get of what the ephod looks like is, is that it's basically like a, uh, a, an incredibly ornate um, brain just gave out again. Um, apron, thank you. Uh, a robe-like apron that had a couple of straps up here at the top. Um, the afford itself was, was beautiful, it was made of purple, and remember that all these dyes were very, very expensive. The, the purple, the, the blue, and so on, because uh, they were not readily available. Um, and linen was something that was used by the Egyptian royalty. Uh, where I wanted to park was on the straps. Um, because the straps had a couple of stones. Um, let's see, where are we? 28.6. Uh, Exodus 28.6 to 14. Uh, 
let's see, I'm specifically looking for Well, yeah, John, you want to read it? Um, <clears throat> and fasten them onto the shoulder pieces of the epoch and just memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron Go is, ahead. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Okay. Why, why don't you uh, read from 6 to 14? Oh. Um... <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen, and work the work of a skilled craftsman. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to the two to two of its corners, so that it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in order of their birth, the six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other, and engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in the gold Filigree. Filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of Nebuchadnezzar as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel. Okay. Um, again, you talk about something incredibly ornate. Um, the straps would have the onyx stones and on them um, you, uh, an engraver would put the names of the tribes. Six of one stone six and the other and you can imagine the intricacy that would be involved in that um, and this would be set in gold filigree think about the uh, the fine gold work that would have to go into that where I wanted to park is the last verse that talks about this will be a memorial uh, before God uh, for the children of Israel you say, what on earth does that mean? I'm just curious, but how big do you think those stones were if they each had six names on them? I'm assuming that there were six names. Yeah, it, it, I'm sorry, it does say that. Yeah. Um, look, you cannot have a, uh, a watermelon size on, 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 the, uh, on the shoulder. Uh, I, I, you know, just picture. What would you pick? <laughs> I, I would say about the size, the biggest would be the size of a, a fist. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe a different shape. Possibly. This, maybe? I don't know. I mean, it. A shape it, more conducive, but, or maybe it has a lot of facets. So. That's that's a possibility because diamonds. Can be uh, multifaceted or are multifaceted. Um, what what really spoke to me is this word memorial, zikaron. Um, that um, always has the sense of this is something 
that you are remind God about the people of Israel. Now again, it's obviously both and. Uh, because do you need to remind God of anything? Like an intercessor? Exactly. That's exactly it, Art. Um, when we remind God about somebody and pray for them, that's in essence what it is that we're doing. We're calling God to remember so-and-so not because he is lacking information, but because we are basically uh, putting ourselves in tandem with God and say, God, um, I'm, I'm with you on this. That makes sense? Um, so the ephod, and particularly the stones, for me, uh, refer to, or at least convey the, the idea of intercession. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Choshen um, Amishpat. I know you probably will need some lessons on how to pronounce that, but Choshen. Choshen. Uh, Not really clear on exactly what Choshen means, but the other word that, that uh, is associated with it Hamishpat, judgment or discernment, gives you the rest of the picture. That whatever this breast uh, piece or breastplate was was about, uh, it had something to do with discerning the will of God. Um, there, of course, were twelve stones on on the uh, on the Choshen, Um representing the 12 tribes of Israel. As you see, the number 12 appears here over and over again. Um, and then there's something called the Urim and Tumim. Um, and, and my theory is that, is that the more ambiguous things are in Scripture, the more we have people rush to write books and give uh, teachings on them. Kind of human nature, you know, we're kind of honorary. Uh, there definitely isn't much by way of information about the Urim and Tumim, other than to say Ur, Urim is light, Tumim may be darkness. Um, what we do know is how they were used. And it's quite likely that there were there was a pocket in here where the Orm and Tumim were, probably a couple of stones. Uh, what, what we see is that they were used as lots, you know, like you cast lots, in order to discern the will of God. Now, This doesn't fit real well in our scheme of things because when, what do we do when we want to know what God wants from us? Pray. Pray. Ask. You ask and you, you pray and you wait for God to somehow communicate with you. And at least uh, for the rest of us, I know that God wired me and He knows what it's like to get through the thick skull here. Um, so, 
for me to know the will of God involves praying and waiting in God. What we don't understand is that God instituted this business of Urim and Tumim. Uh, he told Israel that this was part of the discernment to know his will. Now, you, you, you might be tempted to say, well, this was back in tabernacle and temple times. Uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 23 to 26, and we'll finish with this. So they <clears throat> nominated two, Joseph called Barsabbas, also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show us which of these two you have chosen to take the position in this office as emissary, from which Judah turned aside to go to his own place. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was added to the 11 emissary. Thank you. Now, what's the situation here? Uh, they, Jesus they, is gone. Jesus is gone? Which means, how, how many apostles do, or how many disciples do you have? Eleven. Not, not okay. In God's scheme of things, you have to have how many? Twelve. Twelve. And so, they seek God and they cast lots. Now, folks, uh, obviously they don't have Urim and Tumim here. Uh, because they're, they're a long story. But lots basically are like a couple of dice. And so, if we understand the Orm and Tumim correctly, what we're looking at is one would be like a, a yes and one would be a no. They would ask God questions. You see some of that with David, for example, where he asks God, Lord, should I go up here? And God says yes. And should I do such and such? And God says yes. I mean, this is very much like the Orm and Tumim kind of an idea where you ask God specific questions and he gives you an answer, and then if you need more, you ask another question. That's what the Choshen HaMishpat was, was all about. Uh, again, uh, we're not going to make a huge doctrine out of it, but obviously there's enough in Scripture where Saul and then David and then um, are, are using the Orm and Tumim. Why? Because God told them to. Um, Again, what we see in Acts chapter 1, it wasn't about, uh, about how cool the dice were. You know, these are, these are awesome dice, yeah. They'll tell us all about God. No, they cast lots, but what did they do first of all? They pray in confidence. Lord, you know what needs to happen, and we're tossing the dice, and you make, you make it happen. The lot is cast into the lap, but for every decision it is from the Lord. Yeah. So, 
for me, it's not about uh, casting lots. It's about the fact that, that God can use and will use anything and everything to get through to us. Uh, when we seek Him in faith and depend on Him to give us the direction that we need. Um, <clears throat> next week we'll finish up on the uh, garments of the high priest. Um, I especially want to take some time to look at the, at the turban. Uh, remember that the priest had to have his head covered when he went in to pray. I know this has nothing to do with anything right at the moment, but whatever Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 11, he did not give an absolute prohibition, which is why some of us wear yarmulkes. All right. Uh, May I ask, uh, does the, did the priest dress as such and so elaborately um, all the time, or no. was this just when he went into the Holy Holies, which was only once a year? Right? Correct. Yes. That's the only time he dressed. Correct. Yes. The rest of the time he he was not he was not as elaborately dressed. He definitely did not have. Hard. Yeah. Um, Somewhere around Disney World, don't they have a like Holy Land? You'll find a priest dressed that way every day. Uh-huh. Well, just in case. Uh, <laughs> just in case you're curious. Ellen, uh, you leave you leave me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to at least put in every day too. All right. Keyword: Disneyland. Disney World. Yes. Uh, Hermano, would you uh, finish for us, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lesson from our rabbi, and we thank you for who you are. You discern what we need, and you orchestrate things that bless us in your will. Help us to go home safely, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Amen.